From the Los Angeles Times and Futuro Studios, I'm Gustavo Arellano, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of This is California, The Battle of 187. Hi. Uh, we're here to have a 10 o'clock with Pete Wilson. If you haven't listened to the first three parts of our podcast, do it right now, por favor. They'll tell you about Proposition 187, a 1994 California ballot initiative that targeted illegal immigrants and changed the state forever. And it affects the national debate on the issue even today. Martin, 28, please. Former California Governor Pete Wilson played a big role in setting the stage for 187. I tried to arrange an interview with him for months to ask him questions that have been bothering me forever. Like, who created that crazy, they keep coming ad? And did undocumented immigrants like my father ruin California? Well, the day our podcast got released, we finally got a date on the calendar. So here I am at Wilson's Law Offices with my producer, Abby Fentress Swanson, to have that conversation. Yeah, so tell us where we are. We're in Century City. We're going to go meet Pete Wilson to do an interview that we've been working on for months. And let's see how it goes. Em, thank you. Appreciate it. Three security guards to get to Pete Wilson. We go up to the 28th floor and wait just a couple of minutes on a white leather couch before Wilson's secretary comes out to greet us. You must Hi. be Abby. I'm Abby. How are you? Gustavo. Oh, okay. oh, sorry. A little shock. <laughs> Governor, good how's it going? Good. How Pleasure. You? Good, nice good. Yeah. Where do you want to sit? What do you uh, why don't we sit down at this end out of the... Yeah, out of the heat. We can, we and then we get going. I asked the governor, who's 86 now, to introduce himself. He does. And then I'll be honest. The first 20 minutes of our conversation are kind of wonky. A lot of history stuff. But after that, it gets caliente. I end up spending an hour and a half with Pete, so we edited the conversation for length and clarity. And I'll also pop in every once in a while to offer some commentary or corrections after the fact. Thank you so much for allowing this uh, to be able to happen. Obviously, you've read my stories about Prop 187. I just want to hear your stories. I also, you know, I'll ask you mostly questions. Maybe I'll ask for your opinions on some things, but mostly I really want to get your record on 187, not just 187, but your career on illegal immigration. So I actually want to start with four incidents from early in your career that I think is going to surprise a lot of people who don't like you. So the very first incident I could find about you involving illegal immigration was in 1973, when I think there was a lawsuit that allowed San Diego sheriffs and police to be able to arrest people if they thought they were undocumented. Do you remember that? No. I don't. 1973. 1973. So you would have been a statute that you would have been mayor of San Diego at the time. And there was this controversy where cab drivers were being told to report anyone that they thought were undocumented to the sheriff's department or the police. And you actually came out against that. You had an issue with that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it, but it sounds like you. Yeah, like I can think of others, but that's (laughs) I'll accept that one. I just don't I don't remember it. Time out. It makes sense that Wilson wouldn't remember that incident. He originally met with Chicano activists about the issue, but then they denounced him as uncaring. They ended up suing San Diego over the police abuse. Back to tape. Okay, so that was one incident. The other incident I think you'll remember more. Apparently there were gangs on the U.S.-Mexico border going, exploiting and beating up undocumented immigrants. Lying in wait for them. And you actually asked that the police and sheriffs and the feds, of course, come in and help out those undocumented immigrants. So can you take us back to that time? I can, because it was a really a nasty situation. We had thugs lying in wait 
on the U.S. side of the border waiting for these poor immigrants to come across. And when they did come across, you know, they were really the victims of, well, of real atrocities. I mean, rape, robbery, in some cases pretty close to murder. Well, the interesting thing was that on the San Diego Police Department, there were, as you would expect, a number of Latino officers. And one day the city manager came to me and he said, some of our guys are really pretty hot under the collar about what's going on down at the border. And I said, well, I'd like to hear from them. So I did, and I subsequently said, we will allow volunteers to go to the border and anticipate these thugs who are lying in wait and who are actually coming across from Tijuana, lying in wait for the the poor immigrants who were coming up through the border. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, there's likely to be some shooting. He said, these people who are lying in wait are thugs. They are beating up people, raping them. And that's why our guys want to be there. And I said, they have my permission and, frankly, my encouragement because their role on this side of the border is to preserve order and to deal with thugs with whatever force is required. And we had some great, great guys, about a dozen of them. Mm -hmm. And they went down and cleaned that up in short order. They got into a firefight. I saw that clip, yeah. And after that, there were no more thugs lying in wait on this side of the border. Did that happen within the jurisdiction of San Diego? Yeah. Okay. Why, why was that important to you to uh, support those uh, police officers? Because I dislike thugs that prey upon innocent people. That's incident number two, or at least from your record. The third one, I know, of course, you'll remember. The Ku Klux Klan in 1977, they announced, hey, <laughs> your face is already like, uh-oh. They announced, we're going to go to, we're going to basically be on the U.S.-Mexico border. We're going to deter people coming across the border. And you'd say, no. You actually asked the feds to do everything possible within their legal power to keep them awake. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Well, in the first place, uh, I am not a respecter of the Ku Klux Klan. Never have been and never will be. And the fact of the matter is that they were in a different fashion, a very different fashion, admittedly, going to create a situation that was violent down there. They were not police officers. They were not people whom I trusted in terms of their judgment. I wanted people down there who were responsible and who had no ax to grind other than performing law enforcement. You just wanted the Border Patrol there, obviously. That's right. No, uh, no other uh, citizens groups or anything like that, least of all the KKK. That's right. Uh, did you have any inter interaction with the Klan yourself, with David Duke? Did he ever try to reach out to you and try to convince you otherwise? No. <laughs> I think he knew better. It's interesting because I saw a clip in 19, or, you know, uh, read a newspaper clip, and I think it was 78 when you were thinking of running for governor there uh, in California. You went to the Mexican-American Political Association seeking mm -hmm. their endorsement, yep. and you talked about— uh, your interaction with the Klan, and I believe the quote was, I told them to get the hell out of here, and the audience cheered you. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, probably accurate. <laughs> it was reported at the time, so I don't think, I, I don't think they would have said otherwise. No. Uh, so, and what ended up happening with the Klan? Did they end up showing up there? I don't think so. 
at the end of everything now? No, I think they were effectively discouraged. <laughs> yeah. Time out. Actually, the Klan went to the California-Mexico border near San Diego multiple times into the 1980s. Got national attention. Back to tape. And then the fourth incident, um, this is happening in the early 80s. I think you're still the mayor, but you're probably going to turn senator soon. But this is involving Simpson Rodino. And you had an issue with penalizing employers who knowingly hired undocumented immigrants. And you had a problem with that. Do you remember that? Well, what I remember is that I had a problem with employers being penalized for unknowingly hiring them. Mm-hmm. and having no reasonable means of being able to identify them. Once I was in the Senate, I can recall coming into LAX on a weekend. I'd been contacted by uh, some federal officials, and they said, would you be willing to have a meeting with them at the airport? And it will take no more than probably 15 minutes. And I said, what's the purpose? They said, well, they really want to show you something that I think you will be interested in because it's directly relevant to the very problem that you were just discussing now. So I said, I will be happy to meet with them. So I came in, was met by them, and they said, Senator, we're not going to delay you long, but we do want to show you something that we think will interest you. So they led me to a room where there was a table about this size. Oh, I'd say it's about uh, three and a half, four feet wide and about 10 feet long, piled high. I mean, I'd say about three feet high, maybe more, of driver's licenses, social security cards, all manner of ID. Yeah, filled with uh, documents. Yeah, piled high. The guy turned to me and he said, Senator, have Adam... And he said, if you can tell the real ones from the fakes, you're a better man than I am and better than any technology we've got. And his point was, if you're going to put legislation on the table that holds small businessmen, farmers, growers accountable, then it's only fair to them that there be a means whereby they can determine whether someone is or isn't. And he said, these fake IDs, they're damn good. He said, if you go downtown into MacArthur Park for $35, you can buy one of these. I said, I get the point. So anyway, that continued to be a problem until far later. But uh, And it was primarily actually a problem with growers who had become dependent on people coming north to harvest one crop after another all the way from San Diego to the Canadian border. The last crop was apples in Washington. Yeah. You know, they were obviously the people who needed the money, who were willing to work hard, and this had been going on for years with no oversight. And they would come up, stay through the harvest, whatever crop was the earliest, and then stay right through the apples in Washington and then go back home and come back the next year. Bitterly opposed by labor unions. Why do you think they did? Because they didn't want the competition. And frankly, because I I think they were guilty of some racism. They didn't want to take them into their unions. They just didn't want them around. Time out. 
A January 4th, 1983 Los Angeles Times article stated Wilson was, quote, especially troubled by an immigration bill that would, quote, impose sanctions on employers who knowingly hire illegal aliens. His opposition rested on his claim that the bill would discriminate against minorities. Back to tape. So, you know, we talked about all these different incidents of your past and other, you know, reading older clippings from the 70s. You engaged in active conversations with the mayor of Tijuana. You met uh, the president of Mexico, Lopez Portillo, talking about how to how to solve this issue of illegal immigration. So I think for a lot of people who have cast you as this anti-immigrant warrior to hear this history where you're actually helping out undocumented immigrants by getting the police to help them out, not get assaulted, by trying to be in conversations with Mexican officials, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. Why do you think that history of yours has been forgotten, at least in the popular imagination? It hasn't been forgotten. It's been never known. There were occasional stories. Uh, I remember one, the new mayor of Tijuana had invited me to come to the inauguration ceremony. And I had done so. And There was a photograph on the front page of the Union, San Diego Union, of us in an abrazo. And I got about five or six pieces of hate mail. For you engaging in a hug with him. Yeah, (laughs) right. Otto Boss was my press secretary. And he said, what do you want to do about it? And I said, trash him. Not even going to bother responding. I also read somewhere that at one point in the 70s, you were taking Spanish lessons twice a week. (laughs) Did any of that stick? You said, but also right now, so I have to ask. No, because um, I tried and found that I've got a good ear. Yeah. But the rules of grammar, conjugating verbs, all that nonsense. It's a little bit too hard for all of us. So you have a record of wanting to help, understanding the situation, and trying to find solutions that seem to at least include both the Mexican side, even Chicano activists. I mean, you're going to MAPA and you're talking about your situation. So then you flash forward to 1993 when you throw down the gauntlet. You say, okay, the federal government has not done its job on illegal immigration. I think we should end birthright citizenship. I think we should deny public services to undocumented immigrants. I think we should deny public education to undocumented immigrants. Some of these got into Proposition 187. Others, like end birthright citizenship, didn't. It seems to me two completely diametrically opposed ways to solve this issue of immigration. Do you think you changed or? No, I didn't change at all. But I think your basic premise is misstated because it wasn't that the federal government was not doing its job. To the contrary, not only were they not doing the job adequately in terms of securing the border, to the contrary, they had mandated very expensive services upon the states, state and local taxpayers to provide these services, to provide education, to provide health care. My God, health care had mushroomed. I mean, in the six months from the, or six months, six years, from the COBRA legislation that made it possible for illegal immigrants to enter the country, 18-year-old women, pregnant, go to the county hospital, have prenatal care, have delivery, post-delivery, postnatal care, and the children were, of course, citizens. That, to me, was wrong. There were two separate issues. One was that the services were tremendously expensive, and you had Congress virtue signaling 
and more, but at the expense of state and local taxpayers. And I said, you know something? If you're going to mandate these services, then you ought to pay for them as the federal government. I mean, you're going to be hitting some of the same people, but you're going to at least be spreading it all over the country. Mm -hmm. And I said, and what you're going to find out is if you don't do a better job of controlling the border, it is going to be all over the country. And in no time, by that time already, we had no idea how many people were in the country illegally, but we had a pretty good idea. By the time I became governor, two-thirds of all the babies born in California, they were born to illegal immigrant parents at that time. Time out. For 1990, the Pew Hispanic Center estimates the number of births to undocumented mothers nationwide was 95,000. The total number of births in California that year was 612,000 per the state's Department of Health Services. I never did good in math, but even I know 95,000 isn't two-thirds of 612,000. Back to tape. The estimate of the illegal population living in Los Angeles alone was 600,000, which then exceeded the population of Washington, D.C. These were people who were, frankly, living in shadows. That was wrong. I mean, what you want is immigration, legal immigration, where people become naturalized citizens, where they are required to learn the language, and that allows them and their children to become first-class citizens, to become assimilated, to be able to participate in both the culture and the commerce of their adopted country. And that wasn't happening. Time out. I guess Pete didn't get the irony that I, the son of an illegal immigrant, was talking to him in English. Back to tape. We'll get to that part in a little bit. But I think your statements on illegal immigration from the 70s, even as a senator into the 1990s, it just seemed a little bit more heated. At least from the outside, it seemed like here's a, a guy, Pete Wilson, who has spent most of his political career dealing with this issue of illegal immigration, specifically as a, as a mayor, then as a senator. Now that you're governor of California, California is a, is a recession. You're like, I'm pulling my hair out on this. I got to do something bigger, at least really make the issue a bigger, bigger than it's ever been, at least for me politically. I was doing that early. If you look back, ironically, <laughs> considering what has followed, the New York Times actually ran an editorial saying, we agree that it is unfair for state taxpayers and local taxpayers to be stuck with the costs of federally mandated services. The New York Times. Time out. This is true. But the editorial also warned about demonizing immigrants, which Pete didn't mention here. Back to tape. New York Times, a lot of publications 25 years ago. It's, it's interesting how much things flip around. That's when, right. When, they made sense then. <laughs> Makes sense then. Uh, when did you first hear about what was Save Our State and then became Proposition 187? Sometime in probably early 1994. What did you think about it? Because a lot of what, again, a lot of what 187 proposed were things you had proposed a year before, except asking the federal government to do so and suing for that. That's right. You are better informed than most because we, in fact, did sue the federal government, not successfully. Yeah. So, yeah. so what did you think about 187 then when you heard about it? Well, I was not surprised. I mean, it was not the first time I had heard 
people complaining. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting things is that when Bill Clinton, having been elected president, came to San Diego, he held sort of a town hall meeting out at, I think, one of the television stations. Someone stood up in a question and answer period and was irate about the unfairness of the situation that then existed, that people could come across the border and take advantage of services and that the state and local taxpayers were paying for them. And Bill Clinton's response was, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely right. By golly, we'll get to the bottom of that. It was a crowd-pleasing answer. He got loud applause, according to the reports. Nothing happened for a while, and then they had a change of heart publicly. No longer agreed with that questioner. Yeah. With the 187 campaign, it's interesting because you didn't actually endorse it until, I believe, September during the uh, Republican convention, the, uh, the state convention. And why- I was urged not to by my campaign staff. Why were they doing that? Well, their attitude was we could tell from uh, not only our own internal polling, but also from a story in the Los Angeles Times that showed that with the exception of one issue, and I can't even remember which one it was, we were ahead, substantially ahead of Kathleen on every other issue, and especially with male voters, but with essentially everybody. Um, they said, listen, you're ahead, you're going to win. Don't do this because you're going to be introducing a new issue. And so far, it's been out of the issues covered in this race. It hasn't been one. And you will make it one. And, you know, damn it, it's not your responsibility. You didn't draft this thing. You didn't introduce it. And so why in the world should you get into it? Run that risk. And I said, because I'm the governor of California, and it is something that will dramatically affect my state. And the potential that we have is to finally get Washington's attention. Did you think 187 would succeed in terms of, like, would it ever be initiated into law? Cause, cause oh, you, you cause bet the, I did. Okay. No, the only reason I asked is because you said it's going to get <clears throat> Washington's attention. That's sure. almost implying that at least it's an attention grabber, but it's probably not going to accomplish anything legalistically just because it'll probably be sued out of court. No, and that's not what actually happened either. One of the things that annoys me is that one of the reasons to pursue it was the Plyler case. Time out, really quick. Plyler versus Doe was a 1982 Supreme Court decision that allowed undocumented students to use public education in Texas and that opponents of illegal immigration have long hated. Back to tape. And it was a poor case. And frankly, Texas did a poor job of presenting their case. And it was a Brennan decision in a very different court than was then sitting at the time that 187 came up. So I said, I will tell you why. This is an opportunity for us to get all the way to the Supreme Court and reverse Plyler. And if we can do that, it will be the thing that turns the corner on getting the Congress of the United States to understand that it is their responsibility as federal legislators to pay for what they are mandating on the states. 
Yeah. Um, so we're talking about 187. And it's interesting you said that the campaign said, don't do 187. We haven't even addressed the issue. But in May, your campaign releases, you know, the They Keep Coming ad. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Talk a little bit about that. Who, who thought of the idea for that ad? Well, I think the idea was pretty obvious. And I had a, a challenge of sorts, not much of one, uh, in the primary. And that was an issue then. And my opponent in the primary was on the other side. Run-ons. Run-ons. Yes. Didn't make much of an impression, but, you know. Time out. Unz was against 187 and has spent the year since trolling Wilson on his website, The Unz Review. Back to tape. So anyway, that was why we did it. And to uh, draw attention to the differences and what has happened and uh, you're... You disappointed me in one respect. Okay. That is you, I think, probably because you were in high school then and later as a reporter went to the files and saw the same thing that I have read time and again about the grainy film. Well, They Keep Coming was simply a statement of fact. Mm -hmm. It was not pejorative, but it was a statement of fact and the grainy uh, film was INS film, taken with a night vision camera. So I guess it was grainy. Yeah. So you don't think that was racist? No, I don't. I think it was a statement of fact. What's interesting to me about that is I talked in my podcast, I talked to Barbara and Bob Kiley, the consultants behind 187, and they said they thought it was racist that when they saw it, their jaws dropped. I don't think it did our group any good or our cause um, yeah, because now all of a sudden it's tied specifically to this idea of an invasion. Now it's right. Called, not only that, but it's racist. You know, it was it's a racist. Against white. It was oh, racist. And they said, it's probably going to help Pete Wilson's campaign, but it's not going to help our cause. Now all of a sudden race has been injected into a conversation that was just supposed to be about numbers, legal versus illegal. So what would be your response to that? My response is that if they were consultants, <laughs> they were not earning their fees. Because in fact, what I intended to do was to make it clear that this was a real problem and a problem of growing magnitude. And in fact, at some point during the campaign, probably several points, I said, if this does not succeed, if we do not get the Fed's attention and peak them into some kind of responsible action, then what is now a problem for the border states will be one for all the states. It will spill over first into the South and then into the Midwest. Yeah. Can you see why people think that ad's racist, though? Well— Like, take someone like myself or a lot of people whose parents did come to this country illegally, and then they see, you know, footage with the voice, they keep coming, almost as it's a bad thing. So in the minds of some people, they're like, that they is us. So can you at least see why people think it's racist? You don't have to agree with that statement, but— yeah, well, I don't agree. Obviously. <laughs> and what I think that people who were here who are offended by that might think did not alter the facts. And the facts were that there were also in California a great many naturalized Latinos who were doing just fine, who were building businesses. I mean, the small business owners 
And the people who went into the professions were the ones who had been naturalized. Mm -hmm. The ones who were still living in shadows were not. They were not citizens, and they were not going to be. Life was probably better for them here than in Mexico. Many of them were sending money home. I mean, foreign exchange coming back into Mexico uh, was a major source of foreign exchange. And I thought, frankly, the Mexican government was totally hypocritical because here they were creating situations, and they've had resources. I mean, they had a lot of resources. I was not looking to them for help. I mean, I had very good relations with the border governors in particular, uh, with the governor of Baja. Yeah. And at one point, we even thought that he might be in some physical peril, he and his family. And I called him and I said, listen, if that is the case, call me and we will engage in a rescue. So if people were offended, that wasn't the purpose. Mm -hmm. What was the purpose was to get them to realize that there was indeed a problem and that it was going to get quickly worse and worse. I, this is a question I've asked everyone that I've interviewed for this. Do you think at the end of everything, here we are 25 years later, Proposition 187 won? Yeah, 187 not only won, but it won by a landslide. Well, of course. But I'm talking about the bigger metaphorical picture. Did 187 win? Well, if you mean did it achieve its purpose? No, because it was not thrown out by the courts. Yeah, it was declared unconstitutional, then Gray Davis decided not to appeal it or reached into an agreement with the plaintiffs and said, we're just not going to appeal it Mariana Felser was the district court judge. And she, after about a year, I mean, we knew it would be, suit would be filed the next day after the Seven election. Yeah, that was, not, that was not a surprise. It was an expectation. You know, I said, get busy because it's going to be a court battle. The thing that really enraged me, though, was that she allowed it to languish in her, on her desk for three years. Yeah. When that happened, I anticipated that they would have been perfectly happy in her court and elsewhere to let it languish right past the end of my service. And anticipating that, we had an offer from the Pacific Legal Foundation mm -hmm. to take over the role of representing the majority of voters who had voted for 187. So we petitioned the Ninth Circuit for permission for them to be substituted for me. They denied that with one of the more fatuous opinions ever rendered and one that I thought was in palpable bad faith. They said, we think Governor Wilson is entirely competent to represent the people. And I said, so do I, but I'm not going to be here in a year. Do you think those were all delays on purpose by Falzer and uh, even the, the Ninth District? Yes, I do. Why do you think they were delaying Because it? they were politically opposed. But they're supposed to be impartial judges. They are supposed to be. So, okay, so 187 obviously passes, then it, you know, gets well, however you want to describe it, obviously, objectively, it dies in the courts because Gray Davis does, decides not to appeal the case. Now we have a California where... No, the, now, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. He didn't... It, that was not what he decided. Through his campaign for governor, he said, I deplore it, but I will abide by the expressed will of the voters. Until he didn't. He had a change of heart. Yeah. And 
the change of heart resulted in what I thought to be a sham mediation. Maybe it wasn't on his part. Maybe it was heartfelt. But in any case, there was what purported to be a mediation. I thought it a sham because, frankly, the attitude of people on both sides was the same, the respondents and the appellants. Yeah. But the Ninth Circuit sanctioned it. So how, how would you characterize then 187, the, the official lawsuit? It's if 187 device. had gone all the way up, I think that it would have been overturned by the Supreme Court. I was quite confident of that because it was a different court. Yeah, so what did Gray Davis do to 187 then? How would you describe the, the eventual fate of 187? The eventual fate of 187 is that the people were cheated of their day in court. Okay, so 187, they cheated in court. Now you see California 25 years later. And what has happened in the interval was sampled in the campaign in the last two months of the 94 election in which there was the damnedest barrage of press coverage that I have ever seen, and all of it negative. Against you and 187. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Up next, the rest of my conversation with former California Governor Pete Wilson. That's after this short break. Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and I'm host of The Real. It's our entertainment and culture podcast we make here at the LA Times. If you like hearing about the entertainment industry with pop culture news and all the latest from Hollywood, you should check out the show. I talk with actors, writers, directors, and producers. Plus, you'll hear straight from our distinguished film and television reporters and critics. Subscribe to The Real on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. And we're back with my conversation with Pete Wilson. As you heard in Episode 3, California's Latino Legislative Caucus released a short film to coincide with the 25th anniversary of Prop 187. Our work isn't done, but we want to say thank you, Governor Wilson. Now, on this 25th anniversary of Proposition 187, we have a roadmap for the entire country to follow. A roadmap on how to fight back against racist, xenophobic policies. And an opportunist leader, one person at a time. Thank you, Pete Wilson. Thank you, Pete Wilson. Thank you, Pete Wilson. Thank you, Pete Wilson. Oh, and happy anniversary. So I asked Pete about the video. 25 years later, Democrats control supermajority of the chambers of the legislature. You saw that video, I'm sure, at that point where they thank you. Do you think it's fair? Or, or how do you feel that so many Latinos directly credit 187 and your campaign against illegal immigration as inspiration for them to enter political life, to frankly become radicalized? Well, I think that they were well aware, as were the Democratic professionals, that when you're out of office, you're out of office. But the people who were willing and able to make a different decision on the part of Californians were the people who controlled the financial capability, who had the financial capability. Let's just look at what has happened to California since, and you'll see how it's affected many political issues. In the first place, the legislature has become overwhelmingly democratic. Supermajority. Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, okay. The first thing is that if you look at the two parties, one has had the financial backing of public employee unions. On the other hand, though, we're talking about unions, but 
I'll, I'll give you the example of my cousins. My cousins, they belong, they're construction workers, blue collar. All of our dads came to this country without papers. All of my cousins are basically, they should be Republicans. They do not like taxes. They do not like snowflakes. They're not social justice warriors. But all they think about the Republican Party is what happened in 1994. They think about you. And in their minds, they remember, okay, a generation ago, we were told that our people, ourselves, were destroying California. I don't believe that. I'm going to vote for the Democrats, even though I don't want to. What would be your response to my cousins who feel that way? That they have been misinformed, that they have been misled, that they have been told by the Democratic Party that they are being discriminated against by racists. That's been the line, and there's been no subtlety. And that is one of the things that I find beneath contempt, to deliberately mislead people like your cousins, who are good people, but who have been taught something that is untrue. They've been taught that they are surrounded by racists. On the other hand, though, some of my cousins were undocumented. You propose them not going to public schools and then people like myself not being able to get American citizenship because our parents were undocumented. So at what point are we supposed to believe you when you say we have been misled? And I'm not saying you're racist, but with all that rhetoric, you could see an entire generation of people who came up with that families being undocumented, like, hey, maybe we have an issue with Governor Wilson. on. Sure, I can see that because that's that's all they knew. That's what they had been told Mm -hmm. repeatedly. And it's untrue, but that's what they knew. But you did want to ban birthright citizenship and uh, deny undocumented children from going to school. That's what you proposed, at least. What I wanted, yeah, because what we wanted and what the people who had done it the right way wanted, I mean, no one was more vociferous than Latinos who had become naturalized citizens. They resented Others being able to cut to the head of the line. People like my family. Yeah. So then what would be your your response then to our family? Like you're hearing this, you didn't do it the right way, you're ruining California, you're becoming a burden. That, by the way, is exactly the message that we put out in the campaign Mm -hmm. with a spot. The citizen Ellis Island one. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. It was not at Ellis Island. It was in San Diego a lot of oh, sorry, people. Statue of Liberty, that's what I remembered. It's how this country was built. American citizenship is a treasure beyond measure. But now the rules are being broken. There's a right way, there's a wrong way. To reward the wrong way is not the American way. Pete Wilson has had the courage to say enough is enough. The ad that we ran said that there is a right way and a wrong way to come to America. So those of us who came the wrong way, our families did, what are we supposed to take then from the 187 campaign and your talk about illegal immigration? Who are still here in California, a lot of them now who are in Sacramento, a lot of them saying, hey. That's right. Well, what I said to them the other day was when they, with a rather snarky message, thanked me. I said, you damn well should thank me because if it had not been for my challenge that changed— the redistricting in California from a set-up deal by the Democratic committees in both houses of reapportionment that splintered Latino communities and put minorities into what were Democratic districts that re-elected white male Democrat incumbents. Then they w- there would be no Latino caucus to speak of. It would have a lot fewer members. <laughs> 
Time out. I asked California Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon about this. His response, quote, If the new redistricting that Wilson forced helped us get elected, you can bet that was not his intent. He continues to show that with his disdainful and petulant remarks. Back to tape. How do you feel about charges that Donald Trump's campaign or issue on illegal immigration is just uh, a repeat of what you allegedly did 25 years ago? Well, it's not the same in terms of tone. We uh, made a concerted effort, and I challenge the members of the Latino caucus and everybody else. And every time I have ever challenged them to find one word that could be construed as racism in the campaign for 187, they have been unable to do so, and they come back to the... They keep coming. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, unhappily, that was a statement of fact. And in the 20 years since then, it has been proven, or 25 years since then, that prediction has been proven true. And it's unfortunate. Listen, we as a nation are the most generous in terms of welcoming immigrants of any country in the world. We welcome them because we need them, we value them. You know, those who have come from other countries in earlier waves of immigration have not always been welcomed. Far from it. Most of them haven't. Most of them have not. Three of my four grandparents were immigrants to this country. I'm damn grateful they had the moxie to come. It was not easy. My maternal grandmother came at the age of 16 in steerage by herself. So I not only am not anti-immigrant, never have been, but to the contrary, value the continuing energy, drive, guts, the talent that has been brought to this country by people who came as legal immigrants. And the DACA kids, that's a little different. What do you think about the DACA kids? I think they came because they were children, because their parents, hoping for a better life for them, brought them. The problem with DACA is that if you recognize the DACA kids, and I would, the problem is that once you grant amnesty, you encourage future illegal immigration. And that is what this comes down to. It really is. Ronald Reagan did it. After he did it, he regarded it as one of the well-meaning but serious mistakes that he had made. Time out. This is a conservative urban legend. There is no direct quote by Reagan on this, and both Reagan's son Michael and former Attorney General Edwin Meese have denied Reagan ever expressed such a sentiment. Back to tape. Going back to Trump's tone, you don't agree with the tone that he takes. Well, he has walked back from it, but I mean, you know, he used the word rapists. Well, unhappily, there have been some. There have been murderers. There are bad people. I mean, in 1994, using at least two-year-old statistics, one of the serious costs was incarceration of people who had not only entered the country illegally, they had subsequently committed a felony that landed them in state prisons. The number was one in five at the time. Today, it's one in four. Time out. California Department of Corrections records show that in 2018, the estimated foreign-born population in its facilities was just 13.5%. Back to tape. 
Are there good people? Obviously, most of the people who have come are good, decent people. But there are some who have come the wrong way, and he is focused on them. But he wouldn't disagree with that, I don't think. Yeah. Well, he's also now trying to clamp down on legal, legal immigration, period, as well. How do you want Californians to remember you when it comes to the issue of illegal immigration? Well, most of them are not going to remember me, <laughs> maybe, maybe not remember me at all, and because politics is not exactly— You still remember Hiram Johnson, so someone will. Uh, yeah, somewhat. <laughs> Mostly historians. Final question, and I, again, I thank you for all this. What would be the message? So you had the message for Californians. What would be the message for Latinos like myself? We are now plurality in the state, especially those of us who came either without papers or our parents were here as illegal immigrants. What is the message that you have as a former governor of California? Well, my message to Latinos in this state is that many of them, most, I would say, are learning the hard way that the smart thing for them to do is to not trust the judgment of what are now supermajorities in the legislature and a succession of Democratic governors because, and I cite as the evidence for that, the number of people who are leaving the state and the number of jobs that have left the state for many years, now for decades, my, my lesson to them is that the same thing that drove out a lot of Republicans and Californians to other states. Texas has been campaigning here for years. Tennessee. And Tennessee. Yeah. And, all, and a lot of the western states. Idaho, Montana. A lot of them haven't. A lot of them don't want Californians coming in. But many have. We've lost over a million people. As this article in the Los Angeles Times the other day documented, citing the legislative analyst so survey. Do you, th do you think 187 ultimately created the California we're in today? It certainly helped. Yeah. And frankly, the California we have today needs fixing, desperately needs fixing, because otherwise we're going to continue. And you talk about inequality. The people that are coming in, 85% of them are going to three or four counties in the Bay Area. And those counties are rich. The rest of the state is not so rich. Given that the Latinos in the state caucus are so super progressive, do you think they're part of your legacy? They're part of the legacy. <laughs> they thanked you. Well, they thanked me with a very snotty little commercial. And what they need to understand is that for Republicans and independents and a lot of Democrats, a lot more. Listen, the vote for, for 187, by the way, wasn't just Republicans. It was an awful lot of independents and a lot of Democrats. 5941. And in fact, at one point, there was a report, I believe, by the Los Angeles Times that a majority of Latino voters in the state, I think your yeah. story made that point, were for it. And then at the end, 73% voted against it. Well, that's because every day, every day, they were being told that they were victims of racism. That is an ugly smear and an untrue smear. That is why I can think it beneath contempt. A lot of people, when they hear this, they're going to be angry at me because they said, you had the chance 
to interview Pete Wilson, and you didn't scream in his face that he's supposedly a racist. On the other hand, a lot of people will be also be upset at you saying you actually granted an interview to someone who said all these bad things about you. They're wrong. I welcome the opportunity to have this discussion. And it's because I think that what is most important is that people do understand that they are not surrounded by racists and that a lot of people who disagree are not racist. They are people who, frankly, have been made so uncomfortable they've left the state. That's what this story was all about. And if they're going to be angry at you, you know, I would have to say this. You were the one, the kid in high school who stayed in class while all the others were cutting class for what they thought was a necessary enterprise. It took some guts on your part to do that, not to be like all the others. Congratulations. <laughs> but then I'm the one who then created an entire career out of writing against 187 and everything else. So in some well, ways, I do have time. to thank you. Uh, yeah, you should. <laughs> but it's high time that you got over it. <laughs> really? Because again, yeah. when I hear about illegal immigration... I have to reduce it down to my dad who came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy and all the other people who I know who are undocumented. So when I hear that people say illegal immigration ruined California, I look around and I say, we have pretty good lives and we've created, we've done everything that the United States asked us to do. How are we supposed to feel? Well, I would have to say this. There are a lot of people who are in that situation and I'm not happy about it. They are not happy about it, I suspect. And that's a tough problem, but it's one that is going to change, frankly, as people my age and like your father. Is he still with us? Mm -hmm. Yes, 69. Retired truck driver. He's a kid. Anyway, that is going to change, but we're going to have to have a different regimen going forward. And the people who came legally will be the first to agree. And even some, I think, who came illegally will see that if we don't stop this, if we don't allow amnesties to occur in future, then we will have a nation that has and continues to be generous in welcoming people who come legally. And what we also ought to do is be a little self-centered. And if what we need are truck drivers or what we need are nurses or what we need is some other category in which we are short of talent. Then we ought to say, those are the folks that we ought to look for and ought to welcome, because this is not racism. And at this point in the conversation, Pete turned the interview on me. Did you take heat from your fellow high schoolers when they cut class and you didn't? Not at the time. It was one and done. There was just all this anger about 187. They walked out. I felt ashamed for not, because I was against 187, obviously. My dad was undocumented. All these other people were undocumented. But as I note in my story, most of those people, they never got involved in politics. Again, I would argue more than a few of them actually support Trump, did become Republicans. But maybe I got the wrong lesson because I was the one who turned into the rabble-rousing activist that I've been my entire career, except now at the times I'm objective. It's a good thing for the times that there are some people like you around. And by the way, the times endorsed me even though they disagreed. What do you think about Frank Del Olmo? Because he wrote that dissension and he said, I don't believe Governor Wilson is a bigot. I do believe, though, he is making a huge mistake by siding with 187, and which he said was playing to the worst uh, tendencies of nativists. Well, Frank was a friend. Yeah. And I had 
a lot of respect for him, and I liked him a lot because uh, he had a sense of humor too. We just disagreed on it because you know, and I and I understand that. I listen. I don't hold it against anybody who disagreed and who uh, voted against it and campaigned against it. What I do resent is the fact that a lot of people have knowingly portrayed me and others as racists. Why does that bother you so much? Because it's not true. And it's an evil thing to tell people who will believe you a lie, and a lie that is so fundamentally, um, I mean, it's got to it's color your whole view. Well, that's just not right. Yeah, I, I guess why I ask is because you're a politician. You get all sorts of attacks from all sides. Oh, I, and, and I've got a thick hide, and I have managed it. And I told my wife years ago before we were married, I said, listen, you're going to hear things, read things about me that are not true and not certainly not fair. And you got to promise me that you will never let the bastards hurt you. That gets to me. Otherwise, I have a thick hide. I can take it, and I'll pop them back. <laughs> Especially with the 187 thing in particular, because, you know, you have your whole record, but this one in particular, you seem to be very zealous of setting the record straight about yourself in legal immigration and 187. It's, it's a very ugly smear, and I do resent it. The people whom I served in San Diego as mayor, I mean, if you went back through the records, uh, you would find that that there were Latinos on every city commission, committee, advisory group, and a hell of a lot of them were Democrats. A lot of them were pretty conservative Democrats. They used to call you Pedro. Yeah. Do you think people, these Latinos up in Sacramento, obsess too much about 187? Yes. What? Of course they do. But don't you think they also took it personally? And that's what motivates them? Like, if the way I see it, ultimately, with the politicians especially, if their parents were undocumented, if some of them were undocumented, like their constituents, they view it as an existential insult to who they are. So it's almost like most of their career as politicians is to repudiate 187 and yourself. Whether I'm not saying it's fair or not. I just think it's interesting. Well, it's not fair. And unfortunately, it's easy. Because... Who the hell talks back? Pete sure did. We were only supposed to talk for 45 minutes, and this last part was at the one hour, 30 minute mark of the original recording. I didn't even include the long asides he had about the California Teachers Association, man. But I appreciated the talk. I want to thank Pete and his longtime advisor, Sean Walsh, for allowing it to happen. And that's it for this special bonus episode of This is California, The Battle of 187. It's a collaboration between the LA Times and Futuro Studios. Thank you for listening. If you haven't heard the earlier parts of our podcast, please go back and download them on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, do give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. It really does help people find the podcast. You can find photos and more about Prop 187 at latimes.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art to find the episode notes. This episode was hosted and reported by me, Gustavo Arellano, and produced by Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin at the LA Times Studios. Our theme music is Salsa by Niña Dios, courtesy of Nacional Records. A special shout out to Marlon Bishop at Futuro Studios for helping us make this podcast. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Hector Becerra, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Julia Turner. See you next time.